from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. Hi there, welcome to Trauma ICU Rounds. I am so excited about this week's episode. Joining me on rounds today is Dr. Eric Sims. Dr. Sims is our chief of the Division of Minimally Invasive and General Surgery here at Harbor UCLA Medical Center, and he is a gifted educator, folks. When I tell you that this guy knows how to teach, I mean, last week he was the second time or third time recipient of our Golden Scalpel Award here second at Harbor time, UCLA, and that's just one of dozens of excellence in teaching awards from for Dr. Sims. A couple weeks ago in Twitterverse, I noticed some conversation going back and forth about the difficulty understanding or memorizing the coagulation cascade. And as soon as I read a couple of these tweets going back and forth, I thought, you know, I know just the guy who knows how to teach any and everything about the coagulation cascade in a way that totally makes sense. And that is actually fun to actually learn and easy to remember. And how do I know this? Well, I've actually sat in on a couple of Dr. Sims's talks with our clinical clerks from UCLA. And I was dumbfounded at the way that he taught the coagulation cascade. And in addition to this, we recently started up our TEG program here at Harbor UCLA, and it's been a long time coming. And so the faculty underwent some TEG training today, and I thought this would be the perfect time to investigate the coagulation cascade and invite Dr. Sims onto the show. So welcome, Eric. DK, I'm really honored to be here. Thank you very much. And thanks for thinking of me to teach this because it's something I'm passionate about. Why don't we dive right in? This week, we're doing something a little bit different. We're doing a vidcast. So we'll have this out in audio, but I would really encourage you to go to the website and download the vidcast and check it out because there's a lot of visual that goes along with this. And even without it, I'm sure you're going to benefit. So Dr. Sims. Thank you. Yeah, I think you really want visual aids for learning the coagulation cascade, Dennis. It's one of those things that even if you are an auditory learner rather than a visual learner, it behooves you to draw this one out. And that leads me to another point. It is ubiquitously poorly taught in this country. And what's worse is that it's ubiquitously tested. It's one of those things that's both clinically and academically relevant uh, to a very large degree. So for all the students out there, all the med students, all the residents, you will have on every exam that you have for the rest of your exam-riddled lives, you are going to have two to three questions about the coagulation cascade. Always. Almost regardless of specialty that you go into, you're going to have coag cascade questions. And it's the same thing. If you're anything like I used to be, you're preparing for a shelf exam or a step exam or an ab site or in-service exam. And you save the coagulation cascade for the night before the exam when you cram it into your short-term memory along with uh, other overly complex numbers-based systems that you want to just cram in there last minute. Uh, because if you learned it earlier, you would just forget it and have to relearn it anyway. And then you go to take your test. You get a coagulation cascade question. And you get really excited and you sit there and you spend a good amount of time drawing out that whole stupid football player. Like, okay, 12. All right. And then in the presence of like cream of mushroom soup and then this other stuff, you get 12 activated, but then that has another thing that it activates and you get really excited and you sit there and for 10 minutes, you draw this stupid football play. And then you're like, okay, okay, okay. See and the answer is B, and you missed it, and that's 15 minutes of your life that you're not getting back, 15 minutes that could have been better spending more time on a question where wrapping your brain around it with a little more time would have actually been helpful, but you never had a chance. And so I hate that this topic, which is so clinically important, so academically important, is poorly taught. I have to give a shout out here to the person that did two things, actually. First taught me the coagulation cascade, which I borrowed heavily from him uh, for this, as well as taught me really what a good way to teach uh, really is. There are a lot of people out there that teach, and when they say that they teach, what they really mean is they present the material. And that's not the same thing as teaching. If you're teaching, you have to have things that make it easier to remember, uh, that allow a mind to grasp a topic. And the coag is perfect. It's so complex that if you just present the material, 
you might as well just read the chapter on coags. It's not that helpful. So when I, back when I was about to take step one, there was a guy, and I, I think it was a Kaplan course that I took, but there was a guy named John Barone, like Baron with an E at the end, John Barone. The guy's a pathologist. And as a matter of fact, I think he went to Cedar sinai for his training, and that's also my alma mater for my fellowship, right? And John Barone was an incredibly gifted teacher, and he's the one that, that showed me, if you have trouble remembering something, make a mnemonic for it. The dumber it is, the sillier it is, the more vulgar it is, the better you're going to remember. I love mnemonics. People hate them, but I love them. But they're so critical for these complex topics. And furthermore, he demonstrated this way of teaching the coagulation cascade. And I've taught it hundreds of times since then. And I've built on it and augmented it and tweaked it and added things to it. So it's a little bit different than it was when John Barone taught me. But I have to give him the shout out. He told me, you can teach this. You can show it to other people, but please you know, give credit where credit is due. So John Barone, if you're out there in radio land, I love you, man. You changed the way that I understand this topic. You changed the way I teach. Thank you, Dr. Barone. And thank you, Dr. Sims. All right. So where do we start? So, you know, the, intrinsic pathway, extrinsic pathway, all join into a common thing. We're actually going to start with a series of rules as arbitrary as that stupid little football play that most people try to remember. I love it. So there's two things that you're going to do. If you want to take a look at the visual aids here, we're going to show you guys the rules, and then there's going to be a picture. And actually, I'm probably going to draw the picture on a separate page because I really want you guys to understand this. Cool. Don't memorize the rules. These rules are here to help you draw the picture. And I tell you, for those who are listening and who really struggle with the coagulation cascade, if you go home and you draw out this picture three times today, maybe three times over the weekend, and then maybe once next week, you will have it on lockdown in your brain. And then instead of having to re-memorize it, reinvent the wheel every time you have a test, you'll be able to instead walk right into a test, remember this, not draw out that crazy football play, just picture this little picture in your brain, and you'll get a coagulation cascade question, and no uh, picture drawn, you'll think for two seconds and be like, B, and you'll get it right. This should answer about 95 to 99% of the coagulation cascade questions that you could be asked. Awesome. So again, do not memorize the rules, but please, if you're writing this down to try to memorize this stuff now, write it down now so that you have it, but then don't try to memorize these rules. Again, they're arbitrary. They're just to help you draw the picture today, tomorrow, a little bit next week. All right, rule number one. All right, forget about Roman numerals. All right, <laughs> they are antiquated and unnecessary and, you know, if you are over-caffeinated and underslept, like you will be on any good test day, you will confuse 13 for 8. You will confuse 7 for 12. Don't do it. Roman numerals have no place. Use good old-fashioned American numbers. Yeah, it's like when I watch Super Bowl and they have all those Roman numerals up there. I can never figure out. Definitely not. I still can't remember what an M or an L is. <laughs> good. So just use regular American numbers. No Roman numerals. Rule number two. Forget about this whole thing, too. You see this? Oh, here's, a, here's nine. And then in the presence of, uh, let's say, calcium and also cream of asparagus soup. We want asparagus this time, DK. It becomes nine activated. <laughs> yeah, great. All of these doggone coagulation factors get activated. They all get activated. And you will never get asked a question on any test about what this crapazoli is. Let, let me tell you how unimportant this stuff is. With the exception of the, the 10A complex, which we are going to talk about in a little more detail, but without having to draw this, this crazy extra arrows and complex stuff, um, nobody cares what's in here. The guy who discovered what this stuff is doesn't even care about it. Don't use this whole step. Just draw a single number, a single Merkin number. So nine, for example. All right. Next, rule number three, four, and six. Do not exist. It even rhymes. Beautiful. These are the names of entities that we used to think were coagulation factors that we subsequently have discovered are either um, minor cofactors or just ions or don't exist at all. As a matter of fact, one of these, I can't remember if it's three or four, but uh, I'm pretty sure one of these. Maybe it's a prion. It's, <laughs> it's calcium. Maybe it's four. I can't recall exactly. It doesn't matter because you don't need to memorize it. But there the artist go. formerly known as coagulation factor four, I believe it's calcium. <laughs> you don't need to know it. Keep it out of your picture. Keep it out of your brain. 
rule number four, five, and eight are cofactors. Now look, somebody asks you, boy, is coagulation factor five, coagulation factor eight, are those real coagulation proteins? Yes, they are proteins that undergo a conformational change to pass on a biochemical message down the line in this cascade that ultimately results in a nascent clot. So yes, they're coag factors. Sure. But the bottom line, DK, is that these two silly punks act way more like each other than they do any of the other coagulation proteins, and they have a lot less activity. They basically are the cofactors of this. And so I want you to keep them in a little separate compartment in your brain. Five and eight cofactors. Rule number five, and again, don't memorize these rules. Just and how just many are there exactly? Six. Six, gotcha. Rule number five is that 10 is perfect. The perfect 10. It, oh, yeah. He's perfect. Boys can be perfect 10s, too. I mean, just ask me. 10 is perfect. And just like in real life, the perfect 10, he does what he wants. And despite that character flaw, everyone wants to be near him. Oh, yeah. Until the age of 40. And then... Um, oh, it's wrote until there. It might even be more like 30, 35. Yeah, around 35, um, you know, you never really cultivated any personality or any intellect of your own. You just got what you wanted based on your looks. You suffer what's known in psychiatry as the narcissistic insult. It's actually really sad. A lot of therapy. It's really sad. Poor Ted. Yeah, yeah. How are those sessions going? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty great, good. Great. Yeah. They say I'm making some breakthroughs. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Last rule. Keep... Lucky number seven, down in your pocket. All right. Now, look, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, boy, this Dr. Sims sure likes peyote. These rules should not make any <laughs> real hard. sense. They're just to help you draw the picture. Okay? So now if we draw the picture, they'll start to make a little bit more sense. Again, don't memorize. Just use it to help you here. All right. So if we're going to draw this picture now without the all the complex extra arrows, we start at the beginning. Here's 12. Uh, notice we're using American numbers, no Roman numerals here, and we're only using a single number. None of this activation step. They all get activated. Right. Then it goes, and here's the basic trend. You're going to start with big numbers here going towards small numbers here. So from left to right, you go bigger numbers to smaller numbers. And if it doesn't follow that trend, it's going to follow one of those silly rules that we just talked about. Okay? So right now we're starting off at number 12. So... Do we need to define off the bat, this is the extrinsic versus the no, intrinsic No, we're going to get to that in a moment. Awesome. Right now, I want you guys out there to be able to draw the most basic schematic that Love you it. can have in your brain. Because I can never remember. Like I, I, I couldn't either in, until I learned this method and, right. and then taught it again and again. Beauty. So 12, the biggest number starts over here. Then it's going to go to 11, right? Then it would go 10, then 9, then 8, right? But... 10, a dirty punk, the rules, does what he wants, right? Right. He does what he wants. So that narcissistic punk, he skips around a little. So it goes nine, then 10, look at that bastard, 12, 11, <laughs> nine, 10. I mean, what a jerk, uh. right? So 12, 11, nine, 10, then it would go to eight. But remember eight is a cofactor. It doesn't get its own nice spot in the picture. It gets a crappy little studio apartment on the Upper East Side. It's like the Pluto of uh, factors. Yeah, it is. Exactly. It's going to get its status revoked. So after eight, we come to seven. And where does seven want to be? Just like everybody else, seven wants to be near 10. Absolutely. But lucky number seven, remember the last rule, lucky number seven, you keep down in your pocket. So this is the only one we're going to draw down. It's right next to 10, but it goes down here. Then it would go to six, but six does not exist. Right. It would go to five, but five is a cofactor. doesn't get its own nice spot. It would go to four, but four doesn't exist. It would go to three, but three doesn't, three doesn't exist. exist. Yeah. So it just goes to two and then to one. This silly little super simplistic diagram is the basis for understanding all of the coagulation cascade. Let's put a little bit of kitsch into it to help us remember how this goes now. First, Let's add in eight and five. Even though they're cofactors, they should have some place in the picture, albeit not their own great spot. Again, we have bigger numbers to the left, smaller numbers to the right, and eight and five 
where do they want to be? Just like everybody else. Yeah, right around 10. They right? want to be near 10. So the bigger number goes on the bigger number side. The smaller number goes on the smaller number side. Eight and five go right there, right next to 10. Now, we have two different cascades here. All right. We do. And I'm going to draw these arrows here. This is one cascade. And if you're drawing this at home, this second arrow, the bent arrow, I'm drawing it purposefully away from the numbers, and you should do the same thing. So these are these two cascades. And let's be really clear here. This cascade right here, the long straight one that's going across the top, goes 12, 11, 9, 8, 10, 5, 2, 1. Okay? This cascade, the bent one, goes 7, 10, 5, 2, 1. Okay? Yeah. So this cascade here, this upper one, is in a line. Therefore, it is the intrinsic cascade. And so you can remember that the other one is the extrinsic. In a line, intrinsic. Love it. Next, this cascade, again, the, the intrinsic, the long straight one, is definitely the longer cascade. If you look at it, it certainly has more coagulation factors in it. Indeed. The longer cascade gets the uh, longer assay name associated with it. So the assay that tests the function of the intrinsic cascade is going to be PTT as opposed to PT going down here. But that brings us to our first little asterisk. If you guys recall, PTT stands for uh, partial thromboplastin time. It's what measures the effectiveness, the function of the intrinsic cascade. And PT is prothrombin time. But we don't like to use PT. Right. And do you remember why that is, Dennis? I don't, you know. I just always think I and R. Totally. We like to use I and R. And I and R stands for international normalized ratio. The bottom line is this. PT is an unreliable test. And depending on a lot of different factors, including what reagent you use to test it, it can have wildly different numbers. Right. So we could take a single vial of your blood, Dennis, right now, and send it to our lab here at Harbor UCLA. We could take another part of that same vial of blood and send it to a hospital in Moscow, Russia. And then we could take another vial of your blood, same exact blood, and send it to Hôpital uh, Lyon Sud in Lyon, France. Okay? And... They test the PT there, and it's 10.8 here, 11.9 in Moscow, oh. and 7.6 in Lyon, France. Oui, oui, monsieur. Same exact blood, wildly different numbers. So it's, it's an unreliable system to use. So that's why we like to use the international normalized ratio. It's sure. normalized. Right. So an INR of 2.3 here is an INR of 2.3 in Moscow, is an INR of 2.3 in Lyon, France. So uh, when I say the longer assay name goes with the longer cascade, don't get it twisted. Don't be like, okay, PTT, this has three letters. And then down here, this is PT, but we really use INR. Well, that's five letters. So maybe I should bring this up here. Don't get crazy with it. Okay. The longer original assay name from the original two assays that we used to determine the function of the intrinsic and extrinsic cascade are what we're referring to here. The longer assay name, PTT, goes with the longer cascade, intrinsic. The shorter assay, PT, goes with the shorter cascade. Totally makes sense. Good. Lastly, Dennis, if we look at these two cascades here, you've got this one that looks like a spear, the intrinsic mm -hmm. cascade. And you've got this one down here. I know that shape. Looks more like a gun, right? Totally. So let me ask you this. If you were going to go to war, Dennis... Would you want to bring a spear or would you want to bring a gun? I think I'd have to go with the gun, Eric. You do, because you're a sick bastard. <laughs> and uh, you would want to bring the gun because you'd want to shoot your enemy and then brag to his parents about how you did it. I mean, you're a sick puppy. <laughs> That's right. So the gun, this cascade here, the extrinsic cascade, the gun is for warfarin. Warfarin, a.k.a. Coumadin, is affected by the anticoagulant warfarin. Right? So the one that primarily affects the intrinsic cascade is the other major one that we always talk about, heparin. All right? Yeah. The gun is for war, warfarin. Now, that brings us to another little 
uh, asterisk here. Warfarin, aka Coumadin. How does it work? Do you remember, Dennis? Jeez. So, you know, I always think of like factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, 1972. Oh, that's but pretty good. I never heard the 1972 in like that. I don't even know what's relevant or significant about that year. But So, by the way, I just have to say one disclaimer. Uh, DK here is really good at playing the Confederate. The guy is like, <laughs> I don't know, Sims. Why don't you tell me? But he actually knows the coagulation cascade better than uh, just about no, anyone I know. No, 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 no. But, yeah, it's, it's funny because... People don't remember much about the coagulation cascade, but the thing that they always seem to remember is 2, 7, 9, and 10. Yeah. I think if you just mention coagulation cascade to your average student and a lot of residents, a shocking number of residents, they'll start making clicking noise and just start going 2, 7, 9, and 10, 2, 7, 9, and 10, right? Um, that's what they tend to remember. Warfarin is an agent that blocks the gamma carboxylation step that is needed to activate the vitamin K dependent factors. So Do let's talk. That? Let's let's talk about this real quick. Oh, great. Warfarin, aka Coumadin. Okay, it blocks the gamma carboxylation step of glutamic acid, and I remember glutamic acid specifically because it's gamma carboxylation and glutamine. Mm-hmm. Glutamic acid, which is needed for activation and, in fact, really creation, but more so activation of the vitamin K dependent coag factors. And one of the ways that most people remember 2, 7, 9, and 10, but if you do have trouble remembering that, the vitamin K dependent coagulation factors you can remember as all of the true factors near 10, including 10. Yeah. And when we look at the way that we've written that out, I mean, that's, it's all right there, right? Yeah, so it's all of them around 10, including 10. 2, 7, 9, and 10 are the vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors. Interestingly enough, vitamin K actually gets its name vitamin K from coagulation. I believe the Dutch word for coagulation is coagulation starting with a K, and that's where vitamin K got its name. There you go. Um, so it's been known for a really long time that this is very intrinsic to coagulation. So a lot of people remember epoxide reductase is the buzzword for warfarin and the vitamin K dependent factors. And that's true. That's actually how warfarin works is it blocks epoxide reductase, the enzymes function. But epoxide reductase is not actually the enzyme that does the gamma carboxylation of these coagulation factors to activate them. It's actually kind of like the vitamin K recycler. After the carboxylation enzymes, of which there are multiple, perform their gamma carboxylation step to activate 2, 7, 9, and 10. It's epoxide reductase that recycles the vitamin K to be able to be used again for the coax. Okay. And so if you block that enzyme, you in effect block the creation and activation, primarily activation of vitamin K dependent factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. Now, this is why this is important. And this is really why we're putting an asterisk here next to warfarin, a.k.a. Coumadin. This is very important and it's very commonly tested because 2, 7, 9, and 10 are not the only things that are vitamin K dependent. And let me just break this down one more uh, second so you can really picture this. Out of all of these factors that are affected by warfarin, you might notice something. We said that warfarin, a.k.a. Coumadin, is an extrinsic coagulation cascade anticoagulation effector. And that is true. But if you look at it, the only uh, one of the vitamin K dependent coagulation factors that is exclusively in the extrinsic cascade is seven. Two and 10 are both in the final common pathway, right? right. 10, 5, 2, 1 mm-hmm. is the common pathway between the intrinsic and the extrinsic cascade. It's the final common pathway. So two and 10 being in the final common pathway are also technically in the intrinsic cascade. And nine is exclusively in the intrinsic cascade. So how can we say that warfarin, aka Coumadin, is an extrinsic cascade effector, anticoagulant, if 10 and two, which it affects, are also in the intrinsic cascade and nine is exclusively there? Well, it's because all of these factors and all these coagulation factors are, of course, proteins mainly made by the liver. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. 
But like so many other proteins in your body, these are also made by the liver. And they're made with different hepatic enzymes, with different rates of creation. And the one that is the most labile, by far, the one that takes the longest to make by the liver, the one that exists in the smallest number in the circulation, and the one that craps out first when you attack it, by far, is seven. Seven is a very labile factor, which is why Novo yeah. 7 is so expensive, because they know yeah. it. Good old common and activated factor seven. Totally. So if you give somebody Coumadin, yes, you uh, will decrease the amount of 2, 10, and 9 that's created in circulation. But the first one to crap out to a critical degree where it becomes clinically relevant and does it way faster than 2, 10, or 9 is labile factor 7. First one to crap out. So let's talk about uh, what makes warfarin special and why they love to ask about it on shelf exams. Uh, and why they love to ask about it on step exams. Fantastic. If you look at what else is vitamin K dependent, it's not just 2, 7, 9, and 10. It's also two proteins. What are those proteins, Dennis? Jeez. So when we're thinking other factors, I think of like factor 13. Is that like a protein or what is that? Factor 13 is a protein. And in fact, it's another coagulation protein, just like all these other numbered ones. But that's not the one we're talking about. What we're here talking about, and I know you know, is protein C and protein S. Oh, my friends. Okay. These proteins, also made by the liver, are very special proteins in the human body and are also vitamin K dependent. Do you remember what protein C and protein S does? Yeah. So the way I always think about it is if they're deficient, people are prone to clot. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, when we think about protein C and S, it's something that has more of an anticoagulant effect on the endothelium. Excellent. Excellent. So protein C and protein S, it's really protein C. Protein C has almost all of the activity, which is why in the trauma literature, I know you know, Dennis, we're always talking about APC, activated protein C, right? Yeah. It's by far the more important protein. Protein S is basically a cofactor for protein C. Protein C has most of the activity. Protein S is like, and oh, I helped. <laughs> so I like to think about this as Batman and Robin. This was the, honestly, DK, you're going to laugh at me, but this is the only way I could remember protein C and protein S and their role in coagulation and why they're important to understanding warfarin, aka Coumadin. Protein C, obviously, as the more active one, is Batman. And protein S, the little helper, is Robin. So we're we talking like Adam West Batman or... No, we're going to go a little bit later. Like, yeah, George Clooney. With no, the, keep the going. Nips. Keep going. The only oh, good Batman oh, movies. The Christian only good Bale. ones. Christian, Christian Bale. Bale. The yeah, only yeah. Batman okay. movies that matter, right? Of course. Of okay. Course. So, and if you remember, I want to say it was the second Batman movie. Not Batman Begins, but uh, Rise of the yeah, Dark, Dark Knight. Night, Dark Knight. Dark Knight Rises. That's it, right? Mm. Um, at the beginning, Batman is um, running around in that big parking garage. And I think he's chasing uh, the Scarecrow. He's trying to get the Scarecrow. Yeah. But there are all these people, just civilians, that have dressed up like Batman. And they're also there trying to get this guy, right? And at the end of the scene... Batman, of course, has the Scarecrow tied up, but he also has all these guys dressed up like him tied up, right? And that one guy is like, what makes you oh, different? You're so yeah. Yeah, what makes you different than us? And Batman goes, I'm not wearing hockey pants, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's such a great scene, right? And yeah. that's because Batman hates posers. Totally. Hates posers. So here we go. Batman, Protein C, and his little buddy, Protein S, hate posers. And so... Those two cofactors, mm -hmm. five and eight, acting like big boy, you know, actual coagulation proteins, when they're just little cofactors, they get broken off on their inseam by Batman and Robin. Five and eight, these little cofactors get broken down by Batman and Robin. Five and eight, the posers, right? Batman hates them. So protein C and protein S break down factors five and eight. And look at how beautiful the human body is, man. I mean, this is really incredible. You've got these two cascades. You've got the extrinsic cascade and the intrinsic cascade. Let's say you start a pathologic clot. Something, we can talk about some of the things that will do this, but something activates 12, which activates 11, which activates nine. And on down the line, the intrinsic cascade is activated, but it's a pathologic clot. Yeah. 
your body recognizing it can have protein C and protein S. The heroes, Batman and Robin, come by and <laughs> knock out factor eight. And then 12, 11, 9, <laughs> stops dead. Your intrinsic cascade stops. Stops the pathologic clot from forming. Similarly, let's say you activate 7 or 10 to activate extrinsic cascade. And again, I'm down the line. Here comes this clot, right? Well, protein CNS, Batman and Robin can wipe out factor five and seven to 10 to stop. Yeah, clot good, too much clot. Not thing, good, right? right? Yeah. So Batman and Robin, protein C and protein S are the heroes of the coagulation system preventing you from making these pathologic clots. You've got one that's for the intrinsic cascade, You've got one that's for the extrinsic cascade slash final common pathway and protein C and protein S stop you from doing this. But they're also vitamin K dependent. Okay. And this is a problem here. I'll do it in yellow because we were talking about warfarin just like we were below. This is also vitamin K dependent. And that's a problem because as labile as super labile factor seven is, protein C and protein S are even more labile. Right. They take longer for the liver to make. Mm -hmm. They exist in even smaller number in the circulation than even labile factor seven, and they crap out even easier than factor seven. So if you start someone on warfarin, on Coumadin, without bridging them to anticoagulation first with another agent such as heparin, the first thing you knock out isn't seven, making their blood thin, making them anticoagulated. It is proteins C and S. Coumadin will knock them out faster. And now the thing that can stop this runaway train of intrinsic or extrinsic cascade cannot stop them. It's like pulling the brakes. You cannot stop even a pathologic clot. And so you activate 12, protein C and protein S are no longer in the circulation. You can't stop it. It will propagate a clot. Same thing, you activate factor seven or factor 10, propagates on down the line and boom, you've got a pathologic clot. This is why they love to ask about it on shelf exams, on step exams. They love multi-step thinking, right? They'll never describe a disease and then be like, what disease is this? They don't do that. That's single step thinking, right? They love multi-step thinking. They will describe a disease and you'll be like, oh, I know what this disease is. And then they won't ask what the disease is. They'll say, What's the most common first line treatment for this disease? That's two-step thinking, right? right? Or they'll say, what's the most common side effect of the first line treatment for this disease, right? Three-step thinking. So they love it. So if you know that warfarin blocks the gamma carboxylation of the vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors, 2, 7, 9, and 10, thereby preventing their creation, but mainly activation, to thin the blood, to make you anticoagulated, but that protein C and protein S, which are also vitamin K dependent, uh, will crap out earlier, and that will make you hypercoagulable by not allowing you to stop a runaway cascade at factor eight or at factor five, you have multiple steps of knowledge about this, which is why they love to ask about it. Right. And the, the disease process that they'll usually ask about for this is, of course, Everyone remembers this, but they usually don't remember the mechanism. It's warfarin-induced skin necrosis, mm -hmm. right? And so for whatever reason, if you form a pathologic clot, if you can't pull the brakes by knocking out factor eight or knocking out factor five with protein C or S, when you make those pathologic clots, they tend to form in small blood vessels first. Sure. And where are the smallest and most uh, labile blood vessels in the human body, it's in the skin. A lot of people say it's in the kidneys, and you're right. And you actually can see some uh, renal dysfunction mm -hmm. with hypercoagulability associated with protein C and protein S deficiency. However, because your kidneys are in your nice warm body, those blood vessels, while very small, are not as labile. And so your skin, which can rapidly vasoconstrict, uh, will tend to be disproportionately affected. I still remember on my shelf exam, the last coagulation cascade question that I've missed was this question. And that's why I'm spending so much time on this. It was, they showed me a picture of uh, just a torso and there were these kind of blackish grayish sloughing areas on the extremities, the upper extremities and a little bit on the, the torso. And they said, you know, a guy had a hip replacement five years ago 
And during his convalescence, while he was in the hospital after his hip replacement, he developed a DVT. So they put him on six months of anticoagulation. Two weeks ago, he developed another DVT. This one was a spontaneous DVT, not a provoked one, Mm -hmm. not from orthopedic surgery or trauma. It's a spontaneous DVT. So what does this guy get? Lifelong anticoagulation, right? They didn't say that. I had to figure that out. But they say the resident starts uh, an appropriate anticoagulation regimen and discharges the patient home. A week later, he presents with this, and then there's the picture. And they said, the question was, how can this be prevented? And so I had to know that this guy would start on an oral anticoagulation medication and that this was skin sloughing, probably warfarin-induced skin necrosis, right? And the answer, look how tricky they are in these dang exams, man. The answer was not uh, starting heparin before starting Coumadin. No, because someone might be able to pick that one out of a lineup and be like, oh, this is warfarin-induced skin necrosis. No, the answer was, and I didn't pick it. Again, I missed it. The answer was starting an IV anticoagulation regimen prior to starting the definitive oral regimen. That was the doggone answer. Tricky. You got to hate them. So very commonly tested. It's a good thing to know about. Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about these guys. What, Dennis Kim, if you uh, recall, kicks off the intrinsic cascade? Do you remember? So if it's intrinsic... This is not going to be like an endothelial or vessel injury. Isn't that correct? Mm, there is some part of it that actually affects this. Hmm. But you're you're barking up the right tree. So I want you to go along that line of thinking. Okay. So I'm thinking endothelial injury or am I thinking about... So there, there are another... three chemical entities that you really need to kick off the intrinsic cascade. And on an exam, they could ask you about any of the three, and they often do. And they sometimes like to ask you about the the really uncommon ones. Okay. Let me go on a little sideline here to talk about the best way that you can remember this. And and all of you out there in in radio land, I want you to actually do this, especially if you're alone uh, in your house or in your car, because you can do it without being super embarrassed. (laughs) Do, Do you know about the birthday song, Dennis? Do you know why? Okay, like if you're at home with your kids, and it's their birthday. You're like, happy birthday to oh, you, yeah, right? Yeah, but you take your kid to a Chili's, right? Or to an Applebee's or to any restaurant, right? Yeah, we don't go to those places. Yeah, I'd imagine not. <laughs> Big money here. You go to Giovanni's, right? All right, look, look. You take your, your kids out, right? And it's their birthday and you tell the wait staff it's my kid's birthday, right? Uh-huh. Do they come up and are they like, happy birthday? No, right? They're like, happy birthday. Happy, oh, yeah. right? They do like that whole, like, really embarrassing, crazy, made-up song and dance. Do you know why that is? You know, I don't. I don't, Eric. I don't remember which studio it was, but it's like, it wasn't Disney, but it's a major studio. I want to say it's like Columbia Studios or something like that. One of the major studios out there bought the rights to the Happy Birthday song. <laughs> Can you believe it? Right? And so, if you sing that? Happy Birthday... As a professional entity, right? If you if you own a franchise and you sing Happy Birthday in your restaurant, you can be sued because it's copyrighted. Oh, Lord. And that, it's, it's awful. It's ridiculous. I think that copyright might be up and I don't know if it was renewed. So I think you can actually start singing Happy Birthday in a restaurant now. But anyway, I bring this up because the birthday song is so important. We as Americans, we don't have many traditions, right? Like I'm, I'm half Ukrainian. I've got a lot of Ukrainian traditions. But me as an American, I don't have that many. Tra- what do we have? We got like the seventh inning stretch, right? Maybe that there's an American tradition, right? We don't have many traditions. So even though it's embarrassing for all parties involved when you sing happy birthday, it's embarrassing for you when you're singing. It's embarrassing for the person that's oh, being yeah. sung to. Oh, yeah, I'd always get flushed, feel warm. Oh, totally, dude. And even if you're sitting in a restaurant and it's not at your table, it's at the table next to you, yeah. you get like a residual, like, ref- like, <laughs> Like weird sort of embarrassment just from being near it, right? You're like, oh, you're a little oogged out, right? I know, I know. We've all we've all had that feeling. But it's still important to do it. Of course. And so even though it's embarrassing, you have to sing the happy birthday song. Yep. Because it's an American tradition and we don't have many. You gotta hold on to it. Love Similarly. It. All right. When I teach the coagulation cascade, I like to name the three things that can kick off the intrinsic cascade. I like to say them loudly like Tom Waits. 
because it helped me remember it. I couldn't remember it. And then I had this tiny little mnemonic because they're, they're kind of similar sounding things. Uh-huh. And it's the only way I could remember it. All right. These three yeah. things. So you're going to do it. You know who Tom Waits is, right? Oh, we're doing it. No, you know, I was thinking John Waits, you know, missing you. Yeah, yeah. In the 80s, so no. No, Tom Waits is, um, Tom Waits is one of my favorite artists in the world. And Tom Waits, if you ever listen to this, man, get me tickets to your next show, man. I've got to see you. It's on my bucket list to see you before I die. One of, one of my favorite. He's an actor and an incredible musician. He does folk music and all this stuff. Anyway, he's he's got this really crazy voice. Sounds like he's been smoking since he was three. He's like, he got himself a homemade special. You know his glass was for the sand. Tom Waits. All right. So if you don't know who Tom Waits is and you want to make me feel old, all you kids out there, just think about Batman, okay? Or a demon or whatever you want, okay? Think about some really gruff, I smoke too many cigarettes sound, all right? And that's how you're going to say this. And I want you to say this at home. The three things that kick off the intrinsic cascade are Kali Kini Kali. Kali Kini Kali. Kali Kini Kali. Yes, DK. <laughs> Kali Kini Kali. All right. Kali is calicrin. Kini is high molecular weight kininogen, right? Yeah. High molecular weight caninogen. And Kali is exposed subendothelial collagen. Like Kalima. Like Kalima, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Kali, Kini, Kali, Calicrin, caninogen, collagen. Really, there are biochemical sidesteps for calicrin and caninogen, high molecular weight caninogen, where it can be bypassed. But there really is not a good biochemical sidestep for collagen. So probably the most important one is exposed subendothelial collagen. But you could be asked about any of these three. Excellent. Kicks off the intrinsic cascade. Good. Now, what kicks off the extrinsic cascade? And you would think that it does it kind of here, just like calicrin, caninogen, and collagen kick off right here, right at the beginning of the intrinsic cascade, right at 12. You would think that right at seven, right at the beginning of the extrinsic cascade, is where you would kick it off. And that's actually not true. Hmm. If you look at the biochemical pathway, it's not really at seven. It's where seven talks to 10. Seven is actually part of the 10A complex. And yes, you do have to have activated seven, but it's not until activated seven interacts with 10 that the extrinsic cascade really kicks off. Okay. So if, remember, if we talk about the extrinsic cascade as our gun, remember we talked about you got the spear and you got the gun. So violent. Yeah. Well, here's our gun, right? And right here, right at the trigger point of the gun is where we activate the extrinsic cascade. It's where we pull the trigger of the gun of the extrinsic cascade. And what pulls the trigger of this gun? Do you remember I, what it is? It's got to be my, I keep saying it. I don't know. 13? It's not 13 yet. Damn you. It is TF trigger finger. Your trigger finger pulls tissue factor. factor. That's it. So TF, trigger finger, pulls the trigger of the gun of the extrinsic cascade to activate it. TF, trigger finger, tissue factor. By the way, they can ask you on an exam about the other name for tissue factor. Do you remember what it is? I do not. I've heard of two of my colleagues that have been asked this on an exam, and one of them actually missed the question because they didn't realize it was the same thing as tissue factor. Thromboplastin. Tissue factor equals thromboplastin. It's the same thing. Okay. So don't be fooled. They sometimes won't give you tissue factor. They'll give you thromboplastin. It's the same thing. It is the trigger finger. So it activates the extrinsic. Okay. The other reason I like using the TF mnemonic for trigger finger tissue factor for the extrinsic is because it tells you the order of the two named coagulation factors, right? So in reality, all of these coagulation factors have another name. It's just nobody cares about them. The two that we really care about are two and one. Coagulation factor two and coagulation factor one. Coagulation factor two is also known as T before F, Yeah. right? So T before F. Tissue factor or trigger finger. Also here, T before F. Factor two is also known as thrombin or prothrombin in its inactive form. And factor one, coagulation factor one, is also known as fibrinogen. Fibrinogen or fibrin when it's activated. Right? 
So T before F, thrombin before fibrin. Let me pause here for one second because sure. we'll be able to wrap up pretty soon. But I just want to say one thing. If you guys remember nothing from this lecture, and that's okay. Like I'm, I'm, I'm good at taking these tests. So if you, if you're like, that's too complex, I'm just going to memorize the football play. You do you boo boo. I don't care. You do it. And if you miss questions, that's on you. Right. So you, you do what you want. But if you remember nothing, the biggest clues I can give you about the coagulation factor are these first, if you're ever asked a question and then you're given several coagulation factors as possible answer choices mm -hmm. on a multiple choice exam. If thrombin is there and you don't know what the answer is, if thrombin is there, AKA factor two, pick it. Thrombin does a million things. It's such an important coagulation factor. Sure. It does a million things that wear so many hats. And so if they're like, which one of the following coagulation factors does blah? And you're like, I don't know. Sims never talked about this, that a-hole. What's going on? If thrombin is there, pick it. It's your best guess, okay? The other major clue that I want to give you if you remember nothing else is this. The answer, if it's a coagulation cascade question, yeah. the answer will never be von Willebrand's factor. They put that in there as, as a matter of fact, von Willebrand's factor classically is the number one wrong answer given by both <laughs> students and residents alike for coagulation cascade questions. Number one wrong answer. And that's because you're really flustered, you're really stressed, it's a big exam. And you remember Von Willebrand's factor is this thing that does something in the blood. And you get this question, you're like, uh, I don't know, Von Willebrand's factor. And you just answer it, and it's wrong. Right. Von Willebrand's factor has a lot to do with platelets. Sure. It has nothing, Lebowski, nothing to do with okay. the coagulation cascade, except for one tiny little association that we'll talk about in a moment okay. that they would never ask about directly. So if you get a coagulation cascade question, you don't know the answer, whatever you do, don't pick Von Willebrand's factor. <laughs> it will be wrong, okay? All right, we'll get to that last little association about it in a moment, but let me ask you the last question, and now you can yeah. finally say it, Dennis. Oh, yeah. What is it? Factor 13, man. <laughs> factor 13, brother. You are correct. So the question that I'm so gonna ask is this. Right. What comes in at the end of the coagulation cascade to cross-link fibrin monomers and stabilize your nascent clot? And the answer is coagulation factor 13. Now, a lot of students and even some residents don't even remember that there is a coagulation factor 13. Right. And if you tell them there is, they think you're tricking them, right? Like, <laughs> like when you tell them, uh, I'm gonna use factor 14 and you're referring to a hemostat, right? right? We've all done that. Um, but coagulation factor 13 is a real coagulation factor and it comes in after you've either initiated your intrinsic or initiated your extrinsic cascade and you've now activated fibrinogen into fibrin, factor one into its fibrin monomers and 13 comes in and crosslinks and stabilizes those fibrin monomers into a more stable nascent clot. Cool, cool? Beautiful. And you obviously can't see what we were doing, but when we talked about factor 14, both of us were just kind of flexing our index fingers. That's the, the ultimate factor there. Yes, indeed. Spoken like a true surgeon, man. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk really briefly about that last little association, because I feel if I don't bring it up now that I warned you against answering by little brand's factor, you're going to be like, no, there's something out there. Maybe this is it. So I'm going to turn to the next page because that one was getting pretty messy. Um, I hope y'all were following with me. And let me pose it this way, Dennis. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, oh, here, we're, we're going to do this. I'm going to ask you a question. Love it. The way that it would be asked on a surgery board oh, exam. Man, it's been a while. All right, know, right. Yes. All right. If you get it right, DK, yeah. I'm going to buy you a beer. Oh. Now, if you get it wrong, then I'm going to ask you the way buy they would ask it on a resident level, same exact question, but I'm gonna ask it the way they would ask it on a resident or student level exam. Okay. And if you get it right, mm -hmm. I'm gonna buy you a beer. I love it. But if you get it wrong, you're gonna buy me a beer. Win-win. Dig it, love it, okay. <laughs> so here we go. The way they would ask it on a board level exam would be this. Which one of the following coagulation factors 
mm-hmm. can differentiate a hepatic coagulopathy from a consumptive coagulopathy. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's a tough one. Here, I'll draw out like the basis of our coagulation cascade again so you can Mm -hmm. look at it. And it might help you. It might not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So here's our coags. All of them, okay? I see. Which one of the following coagulation factors can differentiate a hepatic coagulopathy from a consumptive coagulopathy? Is it one? No. Seven? Maybe. Eight? Could be. Or 12? No. Well, let's think about this. I mean, one is in the common pathway. It's the final thing. So I don't think that's, you know, whether it's a consumptive or hepatic etiology, that should make a difference. Now, 12 is exclusive to one pathway and seven is exclusive to the other. And then eight's kind of hanging out there as a cofactor. So I think I'm just going to have to guess here. And the only one that's really different from the others is factor eight. So I'm going to say factor eight, brother. Excellent deductive reasoning, Dennis Kim. And I know you know the answer anyway, (laughs) but that's brilliant. You're absolutely right. It is factor eight. Now for all everybody out there in radio land, here's the way they would ask it on a, uh, on a resident or student level exam. And that is, which one of the following coagulation <laughs> factors is not made by the liver, right? And the answer is factor eight. Right. All of these coagulation proteins are made by the liver, except for factor eight, right? And where is factor eight made? Let me draw this little picture to help you guys remember, hopefully. Like, why is he drawing a log? That's a weird thing to draw. It's not a log, people. What is this? This is a blood vessel, okay? Here's your... Very nice blood vessel. It's like 3D. Thanks. So all of these coagulation factors, 12, 11, 9, 10, 5, 2, 1, 7, all of them, even protein CNS, are made in the liver, like so many other proteins in our body. Factor 8 is not made in the liver. Factor 8 is made in the endothelium. And factor 8 is made with and secreted with Von Willebrand's factor. This is, in fact, the only way that Von Willebrand's factor has anything to do with the coagulation cascade is that it is also made by your endothelium and it is made with and secreted with factor eight until one of the other is needed and they break off from each other and do their thing. <laughs> well, this has been a fantastic episode and I want to thank Dr. Sims for joining us today on Rounds to discuss the coagulation cascade and he'll be back in a future episode to discuss the role of platelets in hemostasis as well. Today's episode pretty much covers about 95% of potential exam material that you're going to encounter on a shelf exam and also covers some of the questions or materials that you'll probably encounter in a residency in training exam. Please do go to traumaicurounds.com for the vidcast of today's episodes and please also visit Apple iTunes, subscribe, rate, and leave some positive feedback for us. Until next time, continue to keep reading, take care of yourselves and one another. We'll talk soon. (laughs) 